Hello and welcome to Marshall Live. In today's show, we are going to look at two instances of Chinese expansionist imperialism, two nations that lost their liberty at the hands of communism and two nations that the world has swept under the carpet, erasing them from the geopolitical story because China's behavior clashes with Western progressive narratives of indigenous sovereignty. So our first guest is fellow ADH-TV star and host of The Other Side, Damien Curry. Damien, welcome to the show. Hey, Alexandra, good to be here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Damien. Now, today I wish to talk to you about Hong Kong. But before we get started, would you give our listeners a little bit of background on your experience living and working in Hong Kong? Did, for example, the invasion of Hong, you know, China's new takeover have an impact on the business community over there and the general vibe of the area? Oh, it definitely did, and it definitely has. Um, it's changed Hong Kong. Hong Kong is now very much part of China. It's as simple as that. So, um, you know, if you want to do business in Hong Kong, you are under uh, Chinese law, which is fair enough. It's part of China now. Um, but, uh, yeah, it certainly um, did, did change for a lot of people. A lot of expats have left. Many have relocated to Singapore. I think it's a bit of a shame because I think Hong Kong could have been something really special and fantastic for China if it had kind of managed things a little bit less, um, uh, how should I say, frantically, I guess. They really did freak out when the protests started and they realised that they couldn't um, just control everything from Beijing. And I think that that communist desire to centrally control things meant that that overrode the idea that maybe if we just leave this alone and use it as an experiment in liberalism, um, we might flourish, it might flourish, we might flourish as a result of it. But unfortunately, um, you know, the powers that be decided that that wasn't to be the case. Yes, yeah, so when I was speaking to you earlier, you said that there was a real turning point and that was the 2008 financial crisis. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me personally, I noticed I was living there at that time that there was a bit of a cultural shift and it was a shift in the sense it was subtle uh, on one level, but perhaps not so subtle on another. And it was basically that I think for the first time, you know, China had always looked to the West as prior to the financial crisis as being a beacon of, of wealth creation. And they looked to the West and liberty and democracy in the West in particular as being a necessary element or component of that wealth creation that they were thinking about or looking at migrating towards. After the global financial crisis, I think the forces in China that were on the other side of that argument saying, no, 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 centralised controlled economy can create more wealth. Um, we, we don't need to shift in the direction of the West's uh, liberalisation, uh, we don't have to do the financial system liberalisation, all that sort of stuff that they were moving towards. Um, they saw the financial crisis as kind of a way of saying, look, it doesn't work. Uh, free market liberal democratic capitalism uh, gets corrupted, it, it falls to pieces, uh, it isn't a good thing. And so there was this kind of shift in, in both perspective, but also I think in, a, uh, I guess, a lack of respect then for for the West and a feeling that, you know, we don't really need to move in their direction. Um, and maybe the old idea from Deng Xiaoping, the former Chinese president who said originally um, that he, you know, the idea was to have uh, a kind of Western style capitalism, but with Chinese characteristics. I think the, the emphasis went further onto the Chinese characteristics part uh, and less on the uh, shifting towards the the sort of open free market liberal capitalism that we you know we have in the West. Well, make no mistake, when China took over Hong Kong by force, it broke several international treaties and laws, not just the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984 that should have seen it expelled from the United Nations for such behaviour, but its continued influence in the UN is pretty clear indicator for observers that the UN has no real value as a moderator of global behaviour or upholder of democratic rights. I mean, Damien, if you listen to the left about Hong Kong, they'll say that the nation longed to be back in the arms of China and free itself from those evil British colonial oppressors. But is that even true? I mean, I remember the largest protest in Hong Kong taking place and months of street fighting where citizens defended themselves with umbrellas against Beijing soldiers. Was China really liberating Hong Kong? Um, no. Uh, look, 
uh, <laughs> I mean, the quick history lesson, I mean, 19, you know, 1839, uh, you had the start of this sort of tension around the opium trade. Um, China had basically said to Britain, look, you know, the, we don't want your stuff. Uh, but there was a lot of stuff that Britain wanted. They wanted the silk, they wanted the tea. So China had the upper hand on trade in the in the sort of 1830s and 40s. And the way it worked out was that, that uh, China said, look, we're only going to take your silver and precious metals in return for our goods. Um, Britain then created a false demand by flooding the place with opium, uh, or southern China with opium, uh, and then that led to all sorts of dependence upon that, and they were able to trade opium for the tea and the silk that they wanted. That led to a war, um, the the first opium war, uh, when um, the, the, the emperor of China decided that they weren't going to legalise opium. Uh, then we got the, the, the British uh, won that war, then we got the... Uh, second Opium War later, but um, it was the 26th of January, funnily enough, in 1841, uh, when the uh, signing of the convention happened. Uh, the Treaty of Nanking uh, was the formal ceding of Hong Kong Island, uh, the island part, to the UK in 1842. Um, and then we had the expansion of the Hong Kong territories into the new territory, a little bit on the mainland there, uh, and that was 1898 when the UK got a 99-year lease. Now, you could say that, you know, all of that scuttlebutt that happened in the 19th century um, was Britain exerting its power. It was also China exerting its power. It was a trade war. There's all sorts of things that we could take ages to talk about. But basically, Britain had control of Hong Kong up until 1997. That was the deal, the 99-year lease. And uh, apart from the four years after, you know, uh, sorry, during World War II, uh, when Japan controlled uh, Hong Kong, uh, the British took over again uh, in 1945. But that whole time, I mean, it was run by Britain. Then, of course, we had the 1984 uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration, and the UK agreed that it would do a, a peaceful handover of the colony in 1997. Maggie Thatcher, of course, famously agreeing to that, um, and and China was there was going to guarantee. Hong Kong's economic and political systems for 50 years under this mini constitution called the Basic Law. And uh, that was supposed to carry through until 2047 to give people a bit of stability. Lots of people didn't believe it. They left Hong Kong, about half a million people out of the population of around 5 million at the time, left Hong Kong uh, up to 1990, uh, 1996. Uh, a lot of them came back later after things sort of calmed down. And it was apparent that China was not going to rush into making too many changes. It was going to abide by the basic law. Uh, and then things went a little strange after that in about the early 2000s. Yeah, it's a strange liberation when half a million people are fleeing the country, you know, from their virtuous saviors, yeah. and they're like, "No, I'm out of here. This is that's not what I consider to be liberation." And uh, let's not forget no. that uh, China hasn't been exactly virtuous for its entire history either. I mean, the War of Empires is exactly that. So those who oh, say, no. "Oh, how dare China, yeah. you know, be angry about the Opium Wars?" is like, well, I mean, it's fair play after the likes of Genghis Khan. So you know, let's just chill out, shall we? But after yeah, well, there was tea involved. There were restrictions on tea. I mean, you can't hold the you can't keep the British away from their tea, for God's sake. Exactly. They're addicted on tea, tea. That's never a good way forward. But what we saw on the streets of Hong Kong was genuinely scary because this was a modern democracy. Yeah. And uh, it devolved pretty quickly into horrifying scenes. I mean, those umbrella protests, it sounds, you know, almost humorous with umbrellas, but they were using the umbrellas to defend themselves from, you know, grenades and uh, tear gas and all sorts of terrifying things. Now... Was there a fear in the business community and amongst the people of Hong Kong as this played out? Because you're quite right. They quickly lost the liberties that they were promised under this treaty, and it wasn't long before they came in and changed the legal system. They imported this uh, extradition order where they could take people back to Beijing. Activists have vanished. We've never seen or heard from them, from them again. There's almost no free speech left in Hong Kong. And during COVID, they had their first real test of democracy, and it was so bad already that they had to hold up blank sheets of A4 paper in Hong Kong to protest against some of the uh, the things that were being enacted by Beijing. Now, do you think that uh, a lot of these liberties they were promised have already gone and that, that Hong Kong is on its pathway to being more like Beijing? Oh, for sure. And, I mean, it's been going on since, I mean, I remember the first protest when I was there happened after the 
um, Article 23 of the Basic Law, the Mini Constitution, um, had a, 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 a law, uh, the opportunity for China to sort of introduce anti-sedition type laws in it, and uh, that was actually in the agreement. And then they were going to do that. The local government was going to implement those laws under Article 23, and uh, there was a massive police, uh, sorry, massive street protest on the 1st of July 2003. Half a million people turned out on the streets. Um, imagine that happening in Melbourne <laughs> during COVID, right? You know, people actually caring about their freedom and hitting the streets to tell the, the national government to step back. Uh, and the national government immediately stepped back and they, and, and so does the, the local governments. But we're not going to int- implement these, these laws under Article 23 of the Basic Law. Um, so that sort of calmed everything down for a while. Then there was all this sort of, you know, we're going to let you elect your chief executive directly because they had a really complicated way of electing the chief executive of Hong Kong, the leader of the territory. Uh, the special administrative region, as it was known. And, uh, you know, Beijing had a lot of say in that. And so now then they were going to allow this direct election. Um, and they kept promising and promising and promising. And, you know, oh, in 2012, it'll happen. I remember thinking, gosh, is it ever going to happen? And, of course, it never did happen. Then in 2014, um, the central government decided that it was going to implement nominee pre-screening uh, over the chief executives uh, who were nominated for the elections and that led to that umbrella revolution protest that you were talking about in 2014 which I was there for that was kind of huge and I had there were protesters outside my office on the main street um, you know for 11 months before they finally cleared the last ones away the government just sort of pulled back there were a few violent skirmishes over a number of days and then the government really pulled back and just um, they must have had a strategy to just let it let it fade out it took a long time to fade out but it eventually did um, and they cleared it up after about 11 months and um, uh, it was it was pretty uh, weird time to be in Hong Kong. Getting a taxi was difficult. I had to go around back streets and everything because it's a small place. And if you're blocking the main thoroughfare, um, it creates problems. Um, so that was a bit sad. Then in uh, 2019, uh, after I left Hong Kong, there was the huge protest that erupted, the biggest ever. Um, and that was in response to a a law that they were trying to put through that would have uh, basically amended extradition laws to enable anybody who was charged of anything in Hong Kong to be extradited to China um, and, and be, you know, put through the court system in China. Now, that obviously um, is a is a big snub to the basic law uh, in terms of protecting the British legal system that existed in, in Hong Kong previously. And so people really hit the streets then. It was like three million people. It's half the population almost. Um, the equivalent of, it, of if, you know, two and a half million people hit the streets of Melbourne to protest uh, Dan Andrews, which you know, you're probably and, not going to see. That so, should have um, been a bigger story. Like that, three million people in the streets should have been the only story in the news cycle at that time. But I, I think we have to spare a thought for our little progressive bleeding heart lefties because they're seeing here. I mean, the people on the streets of Hong Kong. I mean, they're obviously Asian, so they're a minority group that the left love to pander to. But they were singing the British national anthem. They were they were raising the British flag. They were begging for the English law system to return. That must have been really tricky for the left to uh, rationalise that these people were begging for freedom, they were begging for democracy, and to do so, they were hailing the wonderful British system. What does that do to the left over here? Does that sort of throw a few little co- little spikes in their narrative that maybe, like, the Communist Party isn't really the hub of freedom and liberty they say it is? Well, do you want my you know, experience on that? I can tell you, you know, when I came back to Australia, I would say to you know, it'd be students saying to me, oh, you know, um, why, why should we be fighting for these freedoms, you know, during the COVID lockdowns? And I'm like, well, because, you know, the students in Hong Kong uh, don't have your freedoms and they're fighting to keep them. And you guys are here throwing yours away and you think you're rebellious? You think you're, you know... And it just was bizarre to me that we had such a... Um, a kind of a voluntarily obedient uh, class of youth. I've never seen through through my history. I mean, I grew up in the Bjorki Peterson era in Queensland. We had to really fight some serious threats to our liberty there from his government, which unfortunately was conservative but a little bit too authoritarian. Um, so that was depressing. Um, and and to come back and to see these kids like not even caring, you know, about the, the 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 massive, not only that, but they were pushing against the older generations who were saying this isn't good, 
you know, the kids are all saying, no, have your shots, do your lockdowns, be a responsible citizen because they had it hardwired to that part of their brain that, that doesn't like Donald Trump or something. I don't know what was going on psychologically, but it was very, very strange to me having gone through what I went through in Hong Kong watching the uni students up there and then coming back here. Well, But the really bad stuff now, of course, is the, uh, is the, the new um, laws, the national security laws, and they were brought in in 2020 during uh, COVID. And we have seen, I think, since those laws came in, it's something like 250-plus people have been charged under those laws. Uh, quite a few dozen have been convicted. I think about 40 or 50 are actually in jail. So it, it's pretty pretty scary stuff. And these are such, you know under these laws that sound okay and the local government in Hong Kong keeps saying, oh, well, they're okay laws because they're just, you know, basically the same as any other country's laws about sedition. It's the way they're being applied. They're being applied for any kind of protest at all. So anything that you say on social media or anything that you say if you wear a T-shirt that says, you know, Hong Kong independence or something like that, that's considered to be sedition. If you wave those British, old British colonial flags of Hong Kong with the Union Jack in the corner, that's considered to be an affront to and, a, and sedition. So it's a breach of these laws. And so you've got people going to jail. They're just basically picking off their political, uh, the political activists. And, you know, I'm not a fan of a lot of these political activists. A lot of them are very far left wing um, in a different sense, I guess. But You've got people like Joshua Wong, the young kid who was, uh, I don't know if you remember Joshua Wong, but when he was 17 years old, um, he, he appeared on the uh, front page of Time magazine as a young person of the year. And I think Forbes magazine named him as you know, a person of the year. And, and he was, you know, feted and, and considered to be the, the, the greatest, uh, um, you know, the kind of... Um, uh, Hong Kong equivalent of Greta Thunberg, if you like, um, as a young icon. Well, his family in 2021 um, had to move to Australia, had to sell up their their flat below market and flee to Australia. Um, he has been in jail on all sorts of things that they've been, you know, they put him in jail on over the time. They keep extending his time in jail. Uh, my understanding is that, you know, he's still in jail. I think it was uh, April this year that he, he got three months extra in jail for... Uh, I don't know, for, for disclosing the personal details of a police officer that shot some live rounds against a protester uh, during a, one of the protests. But they'll just keep, you know, charging people. Jimmy Lai, I mean, imagine Rupert Murdoch being hauled off to jail. I know there's a lot of people on the left that think that would be fabulous, but, you know, this is not good. Jimmy Lai was the biggest publisher of the biggest newspaper in town. Uh, it was pro-democracy newspaper, the Apple Daily, and uh, he's He's been in custody now for I think about three years. Um, so you know, well, this, the, this, the is, problem, this is this is the problem is bad. the problem is as you say, the laws might sound okay perhaps on paper, but the problem is they say a person will be put on trial. But we read trial as you would think of a trial in a Western country, but a trial has about as much meaning as a democracy or as an election does in China, where it's a one-party system. So they have elections, but Xi Jinping is not going to go anywhere. He's a dictator for life. It's not the same meaning of the words. And so the law doesn't actually mean the same thing in China as it means in, say, a Western country. And that's really dangerous. And not only that, there's a yeah. whole people who have just vanished as well since this came into play, who didn't even get a trial. They just suddenly don't exist and no one's really interested in finding out what happened to them. Now, Apart from all of this, we obviously know that the UN is not capable of reining China in. That's become pretty clear. I mean, there's more than one autonomous region in China, like Tibet, that live in a open-air prison digital surveillance state. So the UN's not going to touch China. What does that mean for places like Taiwan? Because that's going to be uh, a place that does not just allow China to take them over like what happened in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was unfortunately indefensible even if anybody wanted to. But Taiwan's a different story. What do you think this all means for the future of a place like Taiwan and the Pacific in general? Well, it's pretty scary for Taiwan. Um, and Xi Jinping told Joe Biden that the reintegration of Taiwan into China was inevitable, that it's going to happen. Um, so the question really does come down to what is uh, going to be the response of the West. And 
you know, we're pretty weak at the moment, culturally weak, militarily weaker than we have been in the past, uh, politically very divided, very weak and very weakened. And the United States has got its hands full with the war in Ukraine and keeping a lid on things in the Middle East at the moment. So Taiwan is really on the back burner. It's quite probable that China will take advantage of that fact. Uh, and, and I, you know, I would be a little bit nervous if I was in uh, Taiwan at the moment. But, you know, Taiwan's a, uh, an island country, 27 million people uh, roughly, and it's uh, off the coast of, of um, mainland China. Uh, it was a protectorate of Japan for a long time after World War II, um, you know, in the US indirectly. Um, so it's a democracy. Uh, this is the, you know, the people who, who originally were uh, uh, fled China when the, the communists came in in the 40s. Uh, so, you know, um, not, not, not the nicest bunch of people themselves. The original, <laughs> the history of Taiwan is bloody and hideous as well. But, uh, it, you know, it is now a, a functional, highly um, wealthy democracy and the semiconductor capital of the world, um, which is why semiconductor production being returned to the United States is so critical for America at the moment. And they want to probably get that in order. Um, so, look, it's hard to know what's really going on. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that something's going to happen in relation to Taiwan soon and we will just have to sort of gauge how the United States uh, is going to react to that at the time. I find it really interesting because the UN cheers on the dissolution of the former British Empire. You know, they, they encourage former nations to have votes to elect their independence, to become a republic. And the UN says, if you have a vote and you vote to become a republic, well, then you must be independent and the British cannot say anything about it, right? You'd never see the crown weighed in on an island nation that determines itself going to be a republic. But Taiwan is independent and they have votes all the time and they wish to remain independent. And yet that somehow doesn't seem to carry any international weight with the United Nations. I mean, entire nations refuse to even acknowledge Taiwan as being a separate entity. Now, there seems to be a really big double standard going on here between the way a communist nation like China behaves and the way Western nations are forced to behave. Do you think this divide is going to get worse? And do you think it's going to end really badly with a disempowered West and geopolitical strife in the near future? Look, here's what I think is going on, right? The United Nations puts the priority on diplomacy and keeping the peace, right? And by putting the priority on diplomacy, they always make a moral equivalence between nations and cultures and viewpoints. So it's that classic moral equivalence thing that rears its head again and again and again, where we say, well, this culture's valid, this culture's valid, and we've just got to come to an agreement between these two equally valid cultures. Nobody is willing to stand up and say, Western liberal democratic values are superior. They are not equal to authoritarian communist values. They are not equal to, you know, any other kind of theocracy, Islamist theocracy or anything like that. They are superior values. And we are not standing up for freedom. We are not standing up for liberty and the free markets and capitalism and uh, you know, all of the demonstrated ideologies and systems that create wealth and lift people out of poverty and stop people from dying and minimise the coercive control, to coin a phrase that the left likes, that, you know, dictators or political activists like to have over other people um, by, you know, moving into government and controlling things. So in the simplest terms, unless the West starts to say, sorry, our values are superior and we make no apology for it and we're not going to permit the United Nations as an organisation to make it, put everyone on a level playing field, then we are finished because those who do not share our values will manipulate the system to their ends. And so you will see uh, propaganda, you will see people saying one thing and doing another, and I'm constantly saying to people in relation to authoritarian governments, watch what they do, 
ignore what they say, right? That's the key. So you've got to, you know, what they say will sound lovely. It'll always sound okay and sound lovely. But there's two layers going on at all times. It's, and, and unfortunately, we've taught our people to, to look at the world through our media or our uh, education systems or our lens, which up until recently was pretty direct, you know, uh, you pretty much got, you, you were taught pretty much what was close to the truth uh, a lot of the time. And, you know, there's always a limited amount of propaganda or manipulation going on, but it was nothing, it's nothing like, you know, we're doing one thing and saying completely the opposite that you see in these in these other uh, sorts of jurisdictions. So, you know, I think we've just got to get back to, uh, we, we, we've got to start to be a lot more critical of what we're seeing coming out of the propaganda machines of these of these cultures and these and understand these countries are not like us. So what they're saying isn't what necessarily what they're doing, right? Um, and we've got to hold our own governments to account too that they don't start to slide in that direction because I'm seeing that Australia is sliding in that direction. I'm seeing our our media and our uh, politicians. Under, you know, starting to play games around saying one thing, doing another, and not actually walking the talk. So, watch what people are doing, not what they're saying. Watch the actions, um, and let's try to start, uh, you know, analysing things in that context. Uh, otherwise, you're right; we will kind of lose whatever great greatness we have in our systems. Oh, bravo, Damien. That might be one of the most important speeches that you've ever given. If only you were one of our political leaders, you'd make a much better prime minister than our little Airbus Albo, who just shakes hands blindly and gives blank checks out to the world's dictators, which is a really scary concept. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for here today. Thank you for your insights and for sharing your knowledge about Hong Kong and a few very scary predictions that should serve as a warning to all those people who cheer on authoritarianism. So thank you you very much for joining us here today. Pleasure as always, Alexandra. See you soon. We are joined now by Drew Pavlo, who describes himself as a passionate supporter of liberal democracy and opponent of totalitarianism. Denounced, as he says, by the Chinese state, he loves history and international politics. Drew, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate uh, the this is my first time on um, ADH TV, so thanks for inviting me on. We're very glad to have you here. Now, I saw you lamenting on Twitter last week that the world, and certainly the virtuous Western bleeding heart liberals, have forgotten all about Tibet. Now, those who love to go onto the streets talking about the evils of colonial, you know, people who, uh, the colonials and the imperialist oppression, they seem to be completely ignorant of the entire and entirely disinterested in the crimes of communist China, including those taking place under the current regime. Now, once not long ago, the story of Tibet was a matter of world outrage. Tell us, Drew, does anyone care about Tibet in this modern age of social justice? And if not, why? Thank you. Thank you. Look, this is a good question. And unfortunately, it's a very sad thing. I've been for about four years now, um, a very passionate supporter of Tibet and a passionate supporter of the Uyghurs, Uyghurs of China as well. The Uyghurs who have been persecuted by the Chinese government because they are Muslim and more than a million have been incarcerated because of their religion. And it's the largest incarceration of a people based on their religion since the Holocaust. And I've been consistently um, protesting on these issues. And I guess my political trajectory is a bit of an interesting one because, um, see, I would still define myself um, basically as progressive but on the like the more moderate strain of things i i basically see myself more on the moderate left and i the funny thing is honestly when i was starting out as a protester back in 2019 2020 i would have considered myself a socialist i, I like to like describe myself as an anarchist and all these sorts of things but it was just watching the way over many years many people on the far left um you know would smear the cause of the tibetans and the uyghurs um no matter what you would say despite the fact that you know these are people who have faced 
who are genuinely living under colonial occupation, people who are facing genocide, people who are being persecuted, because it's coded um, for many on the far left as a kind of right-wing issue because, oh, well, Trump's against China and the West is against China, so supposedly China must be good. I mean, this is kind of the, the very basic sort of thought process that seems to go through the heads of these people on the far left, the extreme left. Um, we often call them tankies. And it, that's an old term that basically goes all the way back to the people who still stuck with the with supporting the Soviet Union after they sent sent tanks into Hungary and sent tanks into the into to crush the Prague uprising and the Prague Spring. So this is an old trend that goes back decades now. And basically, it's it's a sad thing where people on the far left they don't really care about you know justice. They don't really care about it in a morally consistent way whatsoever. Sadly, for many of them, it's just about hating the West and hating, yeah, ha hating the West, hating America. And if if a people are unfortunately oppressed by, you know, a power like the Chinese government or in the past oppressed by, say, uh, the Soviets, today oppressed by the Russians, unfortunately they're, they're, their suffering doesn't really count to um, people on the far left, the tankies. And, yeah, just watching the way that they smeared these causes for so long, really sort of turned me away from um, the sort of socialists and the kind of tankies on the far left. And I just was disgusted really by the moral inconsistency. And it really saddens me as well, just the fact that, you know, the Uyghurs are suffering still so much to this day and the Tibetans as well, they're still suffering so much. More than 800,000 Tibetan children have been taken from their parents and they have been forced to go into colonial boarding schools where they are not where the Tibetan language is basically prohibited and they are supposed they are supposed to be raised as Han Chinese and it's a way to kind of break down their culture. And to be honest, and and I try and be morally consistent and I try and criticise the West as well for its failings. And we had the stolen generations in Australian history and honestly what the Chinese government is seemingly doing to the Tibetans is very reminiscent of that. And yet, sadly, it is not very well known on the left and it's not something that people are marching in the streets about. And well, it's really a... sad to me because... I have a feeling it has a lot to yeah. do with the fact that this is an original sin for the far left because it's a, it's, a, it's a problem of socialist and communist governments from a long time ago and it's still going on today. And I mean, with the stolen generation, I, they, I can trace my family history back a long time. And back in those days, a lot of it was to do with trying to help people they saw from experiencing terrible times. A lot of children would be murdered by the tribe because they were what you described as half colonial and half Aboriginal and they were being killed by tribal groups and people were trying to help handle that. But China is not trying to handle that kind of situation. They wanted Tibet for geopolitical reasons and it's always been that way. It wasn't so long ago that I read Tibet is my country, which is the story of the eldest brother, the Dalai Lama, during China's voluntary military invasion of Tibet. Now, it contains the terrifying story of how quickly young and enthusiastic socialist radicals under the spell of the Communist Party swept through Tibet, so-called liberating it with torture, destruction and terror. Now, the book contains scenes of mountains burning in the distance where the army would sack one monastery, set it on fire in the hope of frightening the next monetary, uh, monastery into telling them where all the treasure was buried, essentially. Now, the murder and ruin which China likes to politically call annexation in 1951 has been forgotten by history as far as I can tell. Do you, do you think there's a double standard going on here where nobody's even talking about the history of China and what happened? Because Tibet, they say it's an autonomous region, but I mean, this is hardly what you'd call autonomous in the way that Australia is autonomous from Britain, for example. Listen, it's a very sad thing because um, to this day, and I, I've, you know, this is, this is an argument that is still ongoing today. For example, there is someone called Hassan Piker. Um, maybe many in your audience might not have heard of him, but unfortunately, among my generation, he's very, very popular. He's probably the most popular left-wing sort of online voice among people of my generation, Generation Z. And um, and he's got millions of followers. And just weeks ago, he was saying that Tibet was liberated by the Chinese Communist Party and, and the Chinese Communist Party came in and liberated the Tibetans from their serfdom and slavery. This was his argument. And people still make this argument. And it, it's really ironic because um, Hassan in a million... Hassan would never in a million years ever, um, you know, use those types of analogies describing the West's history of colonialism. And look, I, I do try and be consistent. And I think, unfortunately, in the history of the West, we, we have had, you know, historically, historically we have committed, you know, crimes against Indigenous people. I, I do genuinely believe that. But they, they use the same arguments 
and they try and say, oh, well, the Chinese were liberating the Tibetans. They were, they are the, they were basically, they're portrayed as savage backwards and the Tibet, the Chinese came in as elder brothers and lifted them up and brought them into civilization. And these are really the same, the irony is, you know, Hassan would never in a billion years um, accept those types of arguments made about West and colonialism. And so it's just this big hypocrisy on the far left where colonialism and imperialism is fine when it's non-Western powers. And unfortunately, you know, we, we started seeing from October 7 onwards, um, and, and I, look, I'm someone who is very sympathetic to Palestinians who, you know, have been displaced throughout history and have been have been denied a state, I believe, in a two-state solution. So I am sympathetic to the Palestinians. But from October 7, when there was a really horrible terrorist massacre, basically a pogrom, there was nothing at all that had anything in common with resistance. But people on Twitter, account people people who were Yale professors, people who had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers, described this as justified resistance, described this as um, exhilarating, jubilant. You know, they, they were celebrating a terrorist massacre, a pogrom against the Jews. It was the largest massacre of Jewish people anywhere in the world since the Holocaust. And people celebrated that. And that really, really fundamentally disturbed me. And the way and people said oh well settler colonials deserve it and hassan piker the same man he actually said he, in the context of defending a friend who had said well all and this is what his friend said his friend had said every israeli citizen is a settler colonialist and therefore a legitimate military target and he was and hassan was challenged to defend his friend and hassan said well even babies can be settlers so hassan was seemingly accepting that israeli children could be justified military targets. And that just sickens me. Never in a million years should ever, any child, Palestinian or Israeli, no, no child should ever be made a, a military target. Well, no one should ever be persecuted or, or, or made to suffer like that. And I was disturbed by the fact that this is the guy who has the largest audience among young leftists in the world. I, and he's I, telling them that seemingly I, babies are justified targets. I want to bring this back to uh, Tibet. Uh, for those who survived, yeah. of course, the original uh, invasion of Tibet, and you know, any ideas of liberating Tibet seems a bit ridiculous because let's not forget the Red oh. Army was raiding the monasteries for their treasure and torturing monks for the location of more treasuries. Yes. So they were hardly uh, living in destitution or poverty. But for those who survived, China raised the taxes on the monasteries who could no longer afford to care for the poor that were, they were being cared for in the monasteries. Now, that act led to an exodus of the Tibetan people toward the cities because they had no choice but to abandon the resource-rich mountains. Now, today, China is continuing that by effectively pushing Tibetans out of their sacred mountains to blow them up for the raw materials they use in the creation of solar panels and wind turbines. And they also now hold control to the Tibetan Plateau, which is the biggest water resource in Asia, which gives them control over the geopolitical water politics, not just into India, but also flowing through into other Asian nations. Now, this is a huge deal. Do you think that Xi Jinping is being given five stars of golden approval from the UN because the UN has fundamentally failed to control China and they're reliant on this renewable net zero thing and they don't know they don't know how to get this back from China or how to even enforce any kind of moral uh, verdict on them because they hold so much power because they lost Tibet. Look, it is a very sad irony that in the name of environmentalism, um, they are mining lithium in the Tibetan mountains, blowing up you know, pristine heritage wilderness. They're mining lithium in Tibet. They're redirecting the courses of rivers, ancient rivers that are sacred to the Tibetan people. They're damming them on a massive scale. And it's, it is a sad irony that, you know, environmentalists don't protest against the Chinese government. And it's I don't think Greta Thunberg, for example, has ever protested against the Chinese government. And yet, you know, they are the ones that are building coal, coal plants on a massive scale every single year, the Chinese government. And... The Chinese government clearly doesn't care whatsoever about, you know, environmentalism or or any of this stuff. And they they have they like, for example, solar panels have been made with Uyghur forced labor and exported to Australia. And that's that is a horrible thing. And um, with with Tibet, really, as you described so 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 well, it really is. It really is a genocide. And it, and the events of the 1950s when China came in and annexed. Tibet. People don't realise Tibet was basically completely independent. They had their own currency, they had their own flag, they had their own foreign policy. They actually would send their own diplomats to negotiate with the British. Tibet was functionally 
completely independent and China came in and they annexed it. And Chairman Mao, he he accepted that they were annexing basically a foreign land. When the first PLA troops went through, they were basically foreigners in a foreign land. They they knew that they were in a foreign land. They knew that they were annexing a foreign people. And the way that they destroyed the monasteries, the Tibetans describe it as basically, unfortunately, I forget the, the Tibetan term for it, but their term for this time period basically translates to it approximately translates to when the heavens fell down to earth. This is how they describe that time period and just how disastrous it was for them because it was for the first time in centuries people were starving in the Tibetan plateau. Plateau. They had a very, the Tibetan people, they had a, they were great at, at you know, that they had nomadic traditions, they lived off the land, they were able to be self-sufficient and suddenly the PLA came in, they requisitioned all the grain they let people starve, hundreds of thousands starved, possibly up to a million Tibetans were killed in the end. It was a full-on genocide. It was it was total, total brutal destruction. This is what China did. They annexed a foreign country and basically made people second-class citizens in their own country, basically an apartheid regime, and they committed genocide, murdered a million people, and the torture was indescribable. I went to Dharamshala in December. I met the Tibetan Dalai Lama, I met the Tibetan leadership in, in Dharamshala, India in December last year. And I actually met young Tibetans who had actually trekked over the Himalayas. Um, sadly, it's it's slowed to a trickle in, in recent years because the Chinese government have basically inf- implemented policies where they just shoot on, they, they use live fire to try and kill any Tibetans who try and leave Tibet. And one of the young Tibetans that I was talking to, he was actually 16 years old and he was he was going through one of the mountain passes and it became a famous influence. It became a famous incident because there were um, there were British skiers who actually filmed this incident and the PLA troops found basically um, a, a, a party of Tibetans that were trekking across the mountains. They were all young, all young people. Many were in their teens and they shot at this party using live fire and they killed a young Tibetan nun and this young man who I was talking to, he was 16 years old when they captured him. They took him, they tortured him, they hung him up by shackles for weeks. They tortured him brutally. And so I was talking face-to-face with a young Tibetan man who um, he was brutally tortured by the Chinese government for the crime of having, trying to immigrate immigrate from Tibet and try to get to India. In the end, he was ultimately able to get to India. He tried to, again. He, he made it across the pass in the end a couple of years later. Any, any Tibetan you talk to in Australia, many of them have family members who were tortured, who were who were made political prisoners. You can actually meet many political, former political prisoners in Sydney, Tibetan political prisoners. I met many of them. They, they're in their 80s now, and many of them still bear the scars of torture. And if you ask any of these any of these Tibetans, did China liberate your country? They will tell you to your face. They will laugh in your face and tell you, no, of course not. We're an occupied people. We've been persecuted. We want our independence. And unfortunately... This is not an issue that is popular on the left these days. And once it was really popular, the first time I learned about Tibet was when I was a young kid and I was watching The Simpsons and Lisa Simpson, who was kind of stereotyped by the show as this sort of like young radical who loved um, you know, environmental politics and all this left-wing politics. She she had a free Tibet flag back in the 90s. And, and this was when it was a really popular issue. Brad Pitt, for example, starred in a film that was all about Tibet. Seven Years in Tibet, I think I remember it correctly, which was a great film. But, I mean, I've never seen a single member of the Greens talk about or mention the Tibetans who have vanished after protesting about the destruction of their sacred mountains for the production of renewable energy. Not a single one of them has stepped forward and said, gee, that is wrong. But, you know, they call Tibet an autonomous region, but of course it is not. It is part, it's one part of the world where we're truly seeing an open air prison serving as an experiment in the mass surveillance and digital control. There's a nasty ex-military official hailed as one of the 25 most powerful men in China, over, dispatched to oversee the managing Tibet. Now, he ruled over the area first as party secretary in 2011 and then as first secretary in 2012. When he arrived in Tibet, he divided the city into a grid and placed 700 convenience police stations on every corner as checkpoints for patrols. Now, three million people fell under the most sophisticated and oppressive digital surveillance system in the world. And we didn't hear a word from it, not from our virtuous Uh, people in the progressive left, not from the United Nations, not from anybody. No one seems to care that they're living in a literal digital identity prison. Now, Drew, where is the United Nations on the fate of Tibet? Because 
I mean, we don't even hear our prime minister talk about it or our foreign minister. They go over there, they shake hands with Xi Jinping and it's all smiles. Look, um, it is, I, I have to say, there is one single Greens politician who has talked about Tibet, Janet Rice, and she's now retiring. She, she, would, some, she would speak about it and I, I value the fact that she spoke about it. Unfortunately, though, for the Greens overall, it seems to be basically issue 100th in their priorities, maybe not even in the top 100 priorities of the Australian Greens, maybe not even the top 500. Um, I mean, they basically maybe make one three-minute speech about Tibet per year in Parliament, and then they will call that kind of, um, you know, they will say, pat themselves on the back for that. And, and look, the sad thing is actually that's probably better than every other political party in Australia because no one in the Labor Party or Liberal Party will ever talk about Tibet. And um, it's just really, really sad. I mean the way that this issue has basically fallen off the face of the earth for the organised left and for protest movements across the world. Back in the 90s, it used to be huge. They had um, Rage Against the Machine headline festivals for the, the Tibetans. They they had this as a massive, massive issue. And as China grew and grew in economic power, basically all the Hollywood studios were given the ultimatum, no more films about Tibet. Um, and they basically began to self-censor themselves and no celebrity now wants to talk about Tibet. They used to all love talking about Tibet. No celebrity talks about Tibet now. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I as have, you said, Pennywong Penny and Albanese, I don't think they've ever mentioned the word Tibet once. No, certainly not. And, look, I have one final question here for you today. Uh, the Dalai Lama is exiled in India, so it doesn't appear that uh, China is going to lose this game. They're definitely winning the long game because if the Dalai Lama dies in exile, that is it for the Tibetan uh, monasteries and their spiritual leader because, they, you know, if it breaks, it breaks. Now, if he dies in exile, which he certainly will, do you want to make a comment about that? He can. Oh, I was just going to say, he actually can... He has said that he is going to pick a. He has said that he's going to pick a successor that will likely be born outside of China. China is got, China is certainly trying to control this process. One of the funny ironies is that the China Communist Party, which is an officially state atheist party, has actually passed uh, rubber stamp le passed legislation through their rubber stamp legislature, and um, you know. Albanese met with the head of the Chinese rubber stamp legislature when he recently went to China. I mean, it's all just a brutal, bizarre charade where we pretend that they have a natural democracy. It's, it's a joke. I mean, you might have seen Blinken recently get really shattered when Biden called Xi Jinping a dictator because everyone wants to avoid offending the brutal dictator. But, but um, I mean, they have passed legislation through their rubber stamp legislature saying that the Chinese Communist Party must have the final say over the reincarnation of Tibetan lamas. And this is an officially state atheist party, which is obviously just bizarre. Like a party that does not believe in God says that it will control the uh, the reincarnation of our uh, spiritual entities. But um, they are trying very hard to um, try and pressure the Tibetan leadership inside Tibet to select a, to the next Dalai Lama to be amenable to them. It's very interesting the way that this succession works. Um, traditionally, the Panchen Lama, who is the second in sort of the second most important spiritual leader within Tibetan Buddhism, traditionally the Panchen Lama is, um, is involved in the selection of the next Dalai Lama. And when the Tibetan Dalai Lama um, selected a Panchen Lama who was only five years old inside Tibet during the 90s, the Chinese Communist Party actually kidnapped the child and made him the youngest political prisoner on earth. And no one to this day knows what happened to the young child who was designated by the Dalai Lama to be the Panchen Lama who would then choose his successor. Um, there is a way around this where the third, large, the third most important spiritual figure in Tibetan Buddhism who has traditionally been... Um, designated in Mongolia, the, the Dalai Lama secretly designated um, the reincarnation of the third most important spiritual figure in Tibetan Buddhism in Mongolia, and they got this child out without the Chinese Communist Party being able to um, intervene and kidnap the child. And so the idea, I believe, from the Tibetan side is that this young this young Tibetan Buddhist Lama, who is now growing a little bit older, he will hopefully be involved in the succession, in the succession to the Dalai Lama, and hopefully they will be able to choose a Dalai Lama who is born outside of Tibet. Therefore, will not be able to be controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party will try and put forward their own kind of Manchurian candidate, who will never be recognised by the Tibetan people. I mean, the Dalai Lama, it is actually illegal to have his photo inside Tibet, but. 
the spiritual connection that Tibetans still have with the Dalai Lama, despite the fact that for for years, decades even, all, all mention of the Dalai Lama has been suppressed in China. It's amazing. I mean, one of, one of the funny ironies, you would probably know about how the Dalai Lama was pilloried earlier this year. I, I personally believe it was a bit of a misunderstanding based on cultural cultural miscommunication because he's speaking in English, his second language. And, you know, there is this sort of Tibetan tradition where in Tibetan, the grandparents sometimes joke about biting a tongue. There was a miscommunication. He was pilloried all around the world for that. One of the funny ironies, though, was that the Chinese media ran with this inside China, trying to say, oh, listen, the Dalai Lama is a pedophile, etc. They were trying to smear him. But the funny irony was that this was the first time he was in that it was the first time in years and years and years that many Tibetans actually even saw an image of the Dalai Lama, and um, they were so they were so um, happy just to be able to see an image of him because for years it's been completely suppressed. And then suddenly they brought out the news report trying to denounce him, and yet for the Tibetan people inside Tibet, the first time they'd actually seen the Dalai Lama in years and years, it was actually really important to them. So it, the funny thing is. The Chinese government continues and continues to try and say, we will select the next Dalai Lama. They want to try and make sure they break this tradition forever. But the Tibetan people, I mean, they just refuse to allow this process to happen. They just refuse. Even even though they can't politically fight back right now, they still spiritually um, keep the Tibetan traditions alive. This is why the Chinese government's trying so hard to take the next generation away from their families, raise them in boarding schools to try to break those cultural links. But I don't think they can be successful. It's, it's not possible to destroy an entire people like that the tibetan people are really really strong i mean they've got their own culture their own language it's they've got their own history at one point the tibetans even actually conquered china back in back centuries and centuries ago so they're a very proud people and they won't allow the chinese government to completely genocide them as the chinese government and xi jinping want well that was actually going to be my question about the dalai lama which you have answered perfectly and look thank you for joining us today and for spreading uh, the awareness about tibet i think we need to keep talking about it particularly as things thank are getting you, a little bit dangerous with china and the pacific so thank you once again for joining us here today on martial live no thank you even if it's not a popular issue i'll keep on speaking to on it till the day i die thank you so much and look that's all we have time for here today catch you next week